Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Those were a few sounds of the last Classic Fighters air show. Today we're talking with Graham Orphan, who runs Classic Fighters. Well, um, Graham, but first I want to ask you about how did the air show Classic Fighters first come about, and and when did it first come about? Sure, right. Um, basically, I suppose you could say there was a bit of a groundswell of interest and activity associated with uh, older aircraft going back to the mid-90s, we set up the Marlborough Warbirds group uh, primarily as a syndicate to own a Nanchang that evolved into a second Nanchang and then a few other airplanes I was restoring, a Tiger Moth and so on. Yeah. And we held a fly-in um, for what was then referred to as the Carbonosta Club of New Zealand. Uh, that was 95. Um, come 97, uh, we'd... Um, been talking with New Zealand Warbirds, they were looking for somewhere to go for the weekend and uh, we had both Nanchangs flying then, plus I had the Harvard that we'd brought in from South Africa here as well, so it was a, a kind of a, a kind of a new area of activity, Warbirds saw it as a fun place to visit, so um, everyone came down over Easter and we had a, a great weekend, really just as a fly-in, it was, it was for aviation people, not for the public. Right. Uh, but the public took interest as they do, and, and that was heartening. Uh, come '99, we did exactly the same thing. Obviously, we were alternating with with Wanaka for major uh, warbird events over the Easter weekend. Uh, everyone was having a lot of fun. Um, more interest from the public in '99 for us. I think we charged five dollars a car or something, yep. just so that we could fund some portaloos. Oh right. Yep. We didn't want all the public going and annoying the Aero Club with their limited facilities. So. So what we ended up with was, was the beginnings of a, a sort of uh, formula to run a public event. So after that 99 event, uh, we all sat around a table and said, look, um, we've talked about starting an aviation museum, pondered over how we might be able to fund that. Um, so do we combine both initiatives and, and decide we're going to hang up the fly-in hats um, ceased to be a, an aviation entity and become an entertainment entity and that was a very clear discussion we had, you know, if you're going to go from being a fly-in where we all have fun and fly our own aeroplanes and, and each other's aeroplanes and what have you yeah. uh, to going on to a, uh, a public event, we, we really are doing it for the public, we're, we're doing something to entertain families right, right. so we had to move away from the pure selfish flying that we like to do uh, into something that would be um, really pre presenting uh, our passion for heritage aviation to the public in a way that uh, A, would tick the box of fundraising for the museum, B, would, would start to go into other benefits uh, such as winning hearts and minds of the community so that they see the airfield as a good thing to have in, in, their, uh, in their town. Yep. Uh, so that should that airfield ever be challenged, uh, you've got public sentiment on the side, 
Um, likewise, if the, the event grows sufficiently to, to generate uh, a reasonable level of commerce within the province, that again uh, wins support from um, the, the, the broader community and the council as well. So, right, so right. the municipality then sees the um, airfield and activities on the airfield as, um, as being positive for the town. So Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, personally, my, my philosophy is that um, aviation won't look after itself. We all have to support it proactively. We've got to go out and ask the question, what more can we do to, to grow and support aviation? And our interests in particular with heritage aviation mean that uh, it's crucial to do things like um, running public events like the air show or flying days as we've started doing here every couple of months right. um, to invite the airfield or invite the public rather onto the airfield make them think of it as their community airfield right. uh, rather than a, a rich kids private club yep. uh, which never augurs well for um, how people <laughs> see aviation so, so if aviation becomes public property heritage aviation becomes public property um, you immediately have more support from from the, the greater uh, community just because you've you've included them, and I think that's crucial. So, public right. events, air shows, um, the museum is part of that too. Selling aviation to the public, um, making it something that they see as an interest that they have, even if it's not an active participating interest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, with the magazine, it's the same. It's it's again, it's promoting heritage aviation to as many people as we can. Uh, primarily with the, the goal of if we can take a few people from being spectators to participants, then then the, the activity grows. So, right. Uh, each bit of growth makes it more secure. So it's a right. f fairly you know, grandiose kind of view of the world, but really what it comes down to is uh, uh, to run an air show is a bloody lot of hard work. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit about what actually goes into preparing for an air show. It, so at the end of an air show, you're all done and dusted. You've got to start thinking about the next one. Um, what what sort of things do you uh, have to start thinking about? Well, funnily enough, I've already got things. I, even today, I'm doing work on the 2015 show. Wow. Two, two years is not enough anymore. So yeah. I've had a file on my desk, you know, classic fighter 2015, for a little while now. Um, that hasn't happened previously, by the way. We've, we've um, always thought someone else will pick this up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, we do have a very uh, rich community of, of quality people uh, here in Marlborough. We're very, very fortunate. The town size lends itself to uh, good access to the airfield. The airfield's obviously close to town. Um, and it's always been an aviation town. Uh, at one stage, 10% of, of working people in Marlborough were working in aviation uh, between the Air Force and Safe Air and, and activities at Omarcus. So right. uh, it is it's, um, a pretty healthy place to be running aviation events. Uh, and we've got an outstanding uh, Aero Club committee who, who are also very proactive in doing different but related things such as the stole championships that were um, sponsored by Dr. Dave Baldwin um, in February and they were very successful and, and a lot of fun so um, we've, we've got uh, just quite an immense collection of people so that we've got folks to go to when, when we need something done.
Right, right, right. And, and you've got quite a, a good little uh, team that works on Classic Fighters each uh, time, haven't you? We have. We've got some excellent people, uh, folks like um, Steve Peterson, who's always uh, been the architect of the flying program. Yep. Um, Dave Lockhead is, is the creative director. Um, Jane and Joe and their team at the uh, Omarker Aviation Heritage Centre have um, uh, really gotten down to a fine art, the, the whole process of dealing with uh, trade stalls and um, uh, food stalls, uh, ticket sales, gold pass, all that type of thing, yep. Waterloo's grandstands, and so it goes on. Uh, and then we've got various uh, people who head different departments, and, and this close to the air show, you know, we're what, uh, three and a half weeks out now, uh, or really just three weeks out, yeah. um, we're having meetings every two weeks for the last few months, and it just, just keeps everybody on on track and, and um, on their game. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, each uh, each issue every two years, you've had a bit of a different theme. Um, tell me about how well the themes have worked and, and how you come up with them. Um, I might just have to step inside. We've got an Anshang <laughs> practice routine over the airfield. Oh, right. <laughs> I love this place. Um, yeah, the, the themes... Uh, Really, from from day one, we we had a, actually a, a sneaky little theme in the first air show, which was the 75th anniversary of the RAAF. Oh right. Um, which I think we did better than the Australians did, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because at that, on that occasion we'd brought the, um, you know, being our first air show, we wanted to make a bit of a splash, and we thought, what can we do that'll be different? And so, for one thing, we wanted uh, World War One, and and. Um, no one had really done a serious World War One thing in New Zealand before, so um, because we had a bit of an alignment of the stars, lots of interest always in Marlborough in the whole World War One thing. Yeah. Um, so we had Stuart Tantrum had had settled here, and he was um, operating the the triplane. Um, Peter Jackson had the the camel. Yeah. Uh, we'd brought Ed Storrow's um, Bristol fighter over from Tennessee just for the show um, and we'd expected one or two more the fouls wasn't quite finished yet that right. Stuart was doing for Peter um, so we built a Fokker D8 to, as a kind of a prop and that was that was pretty neat um, and then we built the chateau the French chateau we had some very realistic vineyards in the background <laughs> and, um, and uh, Mark O'Sullivan's doing a lovely air display over the field as we speak <laughs> A little distracted, but uh, <laughs> so that first show we had the, the World War One thing. Oh, plus tanks, of course. We built some fairly rough Hollywood tanks. Yep. yep. Then we had uh, for the World War Two section, we brought three aircraft up from um, from Wanaka, which were the Hurricane, the Spitfire, uh, and and the Mustang, Miss Talk. Yep. Uh, and we painted the Spitfire in temporary pseudo RAF colours, so that we had. Um, uh, the the white Pacific tail. Yeah. I might just have to pause here for a second because Mark's about to fly past my office window. Hang on a sec. <laughs> the place is littered with Nanchangs at the moment. <laughs> we've got a few people doing their annuals. So we've got the one from Nelson, the one from Wellington, and the three from here. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It sounds really good. Sounds great. Chinese Air Force. <laughs> so, so yeah, for, we actually had the, the ability to put those three. Um, RAF airplanes, the Kitty Hawk, the Boomerang, and the Spitfire together, all with their Pacific-coloured white tails. Right, right. All for that one show. So, so 
so for first time air show we had had the the world war one was was an impressive new element in world war one uh, sorry in uh, air shows in new zealand yeah uh we had the five or six fighters six i think um including the boomerang as a guest and and of course that that's that very subtle wrath theme yep uh the next air show we did we we themed for france um and and that was a lot of fun because um one of the guys built the Eiffel Tower, which <laughs> huge, this is um, Lester Hope, who's an electronics engineer with um, Safe Air. Yep, yep. Uh, he's now moved from Safe Air into his own company, and he's busier than ever, but uh, Lester later went on to build the, the Stuka for us, for the um, uh, North African theme, and we've yep. still got the Stuka here, of course, now wearing uh, Eastern Block, or Eastern Front, rather, colours. Yep, yep. Um, other themes we've done, uh, aviation in the movies, uh, gave us the opportunity to do things like Pearl Harbor, um, uh, a little piece of Apocalypse Now and various other things like that. Actually, that was the first one that I went to and um, one of the overwhelming images I have is the Battle of Britain segment where you had the high... A high up uh, aircraft putting the smoke out, and, right. and, then, and then there was different levels of fighters, and it was just amazing seeing so many aircraft in the air at once. I'd never seen anything like that at an air show in New Zealand, so it was wonderful. It was a neat thing, and, and hopefully, uh, I mean, we've liked to play with numbers a little bit, and uh, in that, in the sense of, of you know, more is better. Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, and we've had some, some very good participation. Being right smack dab in the middle of the country does does make it uh, a, a neat thing because no one has to travel from one end of the country to the other. Everyone can travel to the middle. Right, right. So, so it makes it a little bit more manageable to, to gather large numbers of airplanes. Um, getting them all into the air at the same time is not quite as easy, but, but we'd like to do that usually on the Sunday as a closure. Uh, we don't do it every year. We'd like to keep things a little bit different, but... Um, this year we're coming up to now. Uh, we've got an unusually large number of airplanes uh, compared with previous years. Um, right. So we might have two or three Nanchangs. We're going to have every Nanchang in the country on the field. Uh, about a dozen Harvards, um, lots of Yaks. So. Wow. So towards the end, plus of course, if we have all the fighters turn up, there's there's ten World War Two fighters. So for the final flyover, we're expecting to put quite a few airplanes up. Well, that's got to be a record, isn't it? Ten World War Two fighters together in New Zealand. Uh, well, if, if we can get them all, all in the air at once, the big yeah. question mark, of course, hangs over the uh, Mark 14 Spitfire. Yeah. Uh, the guys at Abspecs are going flat out. I know the guys at Safe Air Prop Shop here, likewise, are putting finishing touches on the propeller, but um, it was uh, a bit of a challenge getting all the components for, for the five-bladed rotol. Right. Uh, but that is coming together now. Um, the, the guy who's in head of the prop shop is also Mike Nichols, who's one of our Warbirds members, restoring the Curtis Hawk. Oh, right. So, so once again, you've got that that uh, rich Marlborough community of, of people so involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, everyone knows each other, and, and we have a, a just a very very good community sense. So, so um, I can pick up the phone and ring up the guy in charge of the Spitfire propeller and find out how it's going. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, and of course, you've had a had a bit of um, overseas involvement from the RAAF and and. Um, Obviously, you, you mentioned the uh, boomerang coming here and that as well. And how, how important is, is the overseas uh, content? Um, yeah, it's good. It's something we'd like to do more of. We we were toying with a number of overseas airplanes coming here this year, actually. Um, and they, they one by one seemed to dry up. One one was um, uh, an aircraft 
involved with the Confederate Air Force and it was being uh, ready for flight and they thought it would be finished about October and, and hasn't flown yet. So, oh, right. so we had to park that one and then um, we actually had planned to bring over uh, Chris Prevost's um, Grumman F3F biplane fighter. Oh, right. Um, and, and Chris got an offer he couldn't refuse uh, that looked like it was going to uh, see the airplane change hands um, before time of the show, you know, would, need, would have needed to um, change hands when it was in New Zealand, and he didn't think that was probably a really good sales technique. Ah, <laughs> uh, right, 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 that's a shame. It's a real shame, yeah. but um, not to worry, well, uh, Chris has got a number of interesting airplanes, and we've got a very good relationship there, and we'll probably, in fact, he's shipped airplanes here before, but they've been permanent residents, like the Yak-3 and, and uh, the Yak-11 that are here both came from Chris. Okay, okay, mm. right. So, um, There'll, there'll be other occasions when we, we bring airplanes from overseas. It is an expensive exercise, and of course there are logistical exercise, uh, issues, particularly getting stuff out of the United States in a timely fashion in the current environment, um, that could see your airplane turn up a week after the air show. Right, right. Um, not such a good look. So, no. So, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of uh, cost and everything, it's a matter of whether you can make it work logistically, and you do have to go through those issues very very carefully yeah 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 so when you look back over the the years of the air show um what are your greatest moments that um your personal favorite moments <laughs> that's a really good question um there have been many uh, highlights one of the highlights for me and for many people the first time we did a um uh, i mean everything we do i have to say we do with huge old plates yeah <laughs> Even though it's been a decade and a half, we've only really done seven air shows. Um, you don't learn everything in just seven runnings of, of the event. So, so everything we do has got a, got a sense of uh, experimental to it. And um, when we did the first Twilight Extreme, there were some good bits and some not so good bits. Right. Um, the good bit that sticks in my mind from the first one was uh, the red checkers yeah. actually ended up, one of them had a bird strike. Uh, which was a, a great concern, but thankfully they had a backup aircraft. They quickly switched airplanes, went on with the show, but it had gotten just that little bit darker. Right. So you ended up with these airplanes with their lights um, doing their formation thing, and the bomb burst at the end, a lot of people said it's the best thing they've ever seen in the sky. So Absolutely. It's so memorable seeing that. I just saw that as well. Yeah, I, just, I couldn't. I, I honestly could not believe that they were doing a nighttime um, <laughs> close formation aerobatic display. It was incredible. No, they're pretty talented guys. And yeah. Extremely disciplined. I mean, when you've got that that issue of um, uh, trying to to hold station and close with another aircraft and having lights in your eyes, I just I've never tried that. I don't. I've done quite a lot of formation, but none with lights on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's not something I'm in a hurry to queue up for either. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. On the downside of uh, the Twilight Extreme thing, we've had um, uh, areas with the reenacting where where there hasn't been enough light for people to see what was going on, and then right. things would go quiet, and um, then you've got that dead zone, which is the worst nightmare of somebody on the PA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had that two times in a row, so this time we're totally changing the format. We'll have the great dusk flying that produces the wonderful photographic opportunities, yeah. Um, yeah. Some, some twilight flying, and then uh, we're going to actually have a concert, which is um, still going to have heritage components to it um, and finish off with, with fireworks. 
all being well. Right, right. So that's right. the plan. Um, and other highlights of one thing I have to say is uh, the V2 rocket from the 2011 show was was one of those things that um, you don't take on lightly. Yeah. Um, we needed our heads red to have even considered it. <laughs> um, and the more we got into it, uh, we, you know, we said if we're going to do a, do a V2, it's got to be full size. Yeah. It's got to be pretty damn accurate to, of line and, and configuration. Um, but it also has to be on a reasonably decent representation of a Mueller wagon trailer. So, so Roger Lauder, our, our team leader on the V2 project, um, basically uh, came up with the whole the whole deal. He had a team, actually Dave Lockhead led the team building the, the upper section of the rocket. Yep. Um, we had a lot of people working on it, plus we also had some commercial work done by uh, Cuddens Engineering in town, so it was quite an expensive project. Um, but what we ended up with was the rocket that we wanted, a full-scale, uh, accurate-looking uh, V2 rocket that was uh, on an accurate-looking representation of a Mueller wagon trailer yep. uh, that had working hydraulics so that when the time came, the, the uh, rocket would raise on its own trailer. Because uh, we're going to go that far, we had to put a rocket motor in the back of the thing so it could light up um, before it was destroyed by strafing fighters. But then we wanted to go one step further, and I, I had this cunning idea that we could uh, rip the lift, rift, lifting chassis off the front of a forklift truck and embed that into the Miller wagon. So we did that so that the rocket could actually start to appear to lift uh, off the ground under its own power. Right. So when the time came to actually see this thing happen, um, I was thinking of about four major things that could go wrong, uh, <laughs> just to ruin the effect. But, but no, everything went absolutely perfectly, and, and uh, it was so funny to watch because um, it, it climbed correctly, it blew up correctly, it fell over correctly, and it exploded when it hit the ground correctly. And as it exploded, you had that sense of the silhouette of the lattice construction, and uh, it just reminded me immediately of the, the famous photography of the the, the Hindenburg yeah. flying up. Yeah. And, yeah. and without even thinking about it, I found myself saying, oh, the humanity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the crowd burst out laughing. I so yeah. saw the same thing, obviously. Exactly, yeah, I saw that too. And it was just a spectacular um, finale to the to the whole air show, wasn't it? It was a hoot, yeah. yeah I'd yeah. actually just spent some time talking with Kermit Weeks earlier, and I've known Kermit for quite a few years, and and so I flicked him an email afterwards and said, I, I didn't see when you left the show, did you see what became of the, the V2? <laughs> he said, see it, man, that thing blew up in my viewfinder. I've never seen anything like it at any air show I've ever been to. Oh, right. Well, that's great. You know, you come, come to New Zealand for a small town air show. Yeah. And, and you can impress somebody like Kermit, who's been to pretty much every air show on the planet. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that was a nice feeling of, yeah, we might not have the, the range and... and you know, quality or number of airplanes, but what we do with the airplanes in terms of supporting acts is, is quite impressive, I think. And um, I like to think anyway that uh, people go away feeling entertained, whether aviation people or families. Yep. Um, everyone gets something out of it. Well, I totally agree. And and one of those things that no one else in the world seems to have done, and you've done it a couple of times now, is get the seven Fokker triplanes up together. I mean, that to me was just absolutely amazing. Uh, that's a total thrill, and that's all down to the guys at TVAL. Yeah. Um, they've 
just um, perfected the routine. Of course, Peter wanted to take the, the triplanes that he had and, and configure them all as airplanes from Yasta 11, yep. uh, the Richthofen Yasta. And um, when, when you go through and you, you read the histories of the different guys, you know, Monica, Weiss, Wenzel, and these guys, and find out when they were active within Yasta 11, it puts it about March uh, 1918 when all of those seven airplanes might have been seen together in, in those color schemes. Right, right. Um, and, and you almost get goosebumps thinking about what it's like to see them all in the air together because, you know, as I've said on the PA from time to time, uh, for the, the public to, to take themselves for the moment out of a, a 2011 or 2013 air show uh, and just think of themselves as being 18-year-old recruits who have just, just entered the trenches for the first time or they've been there for a few months and everything's muddy colour and grey and barbed wire and you know mud and death and horror yep. and then they see this this brightly coloured bunch of lunatics in these noisy little airplanes <laughs> um, that must have just looked insane almost you know in, incomprehensible that you'd see such a burst of colour and craziness yeah yeah um, no wonder they call it the flying circus absolutely absolutely uh, and, you know, it's just um, such a history lesson for all of us right there. I, I actually have to admit, I didn't have much interest in World War One aircraft until I went down to your air show in 2007 and saw that kind of spectacle. And then in 2009, you had the three SE-5As up um, together, which was just great to see. And, um, you know, every year that I've gone, I've learned more and more about the World War One aircraft and... Um, that whole sort of period of aviation and so many other people have said too that they had no interest till they went to uh, Omaka and, and also these days Masterton as well um, it's sort of it's it's brought back a whole era for, for the public isn't it well, I like to think so you know I, I grew up like a lot of kids reading Beagle's books right um, by the time I was a teenager I thought well I'll probably never be able to get into a World War Two fighter but but there's so much interest I felt for World War One flying and the history associated with it that uh, it shouldn't be unreasonable to hope to be able to recreate a World War One airplane and and sort of live out that fantasy, I suppose. Yeah. Um, experiencing flight in a, in a first World War aircraft, uh, and so it's always been something that's that's uh, been a part of my life, but not an active one. Because by the time I was 17, I'd stumbled on a Tiger Moth project and and that took the next few years of, of life and then another tiger and so on. Yeah. So it's really you know, taken until now before I find myself, or I have found myself flying World War One airplanes uh, in my own right. And, and uh, it's it's something I have to say, I, I really enjoy. It's very special. It's um, it's still, again, a, a learning curve. Right. Um, and, and the adventure is, is still there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a pretty neat thing. I think it's a, a huge privilege to, to be in a part of the world where we can aspire towards um, creating and owning and flying a, an aircraft from that time in history so that we can sort of tread in the footsteps or the, or the flying boots, I suppose, of, of um, pioneers of that era. Yeah. Um, one of the best things, of course, is uh, for people with an interest in World War One, is is to to be able to uh, have a look at the contents of the or the display at the Omaha Aviation Heritage Centre. And uh, the the airplanes are fantastic, of course, and the way they're displayed is is um, unique in the world. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the memorabilia that that um, has been gathered 
uh, to me as, um, as history actually in tangible reality laid out before you. And, and to spend time in the museum and just immerse yourself in that time and learn about the different people that participate. You know, often we'll take people through and tell them some of the stories. And, and we're not talking um, airplane enthusiast stuff here. We're talking human stories and how they, they, they touch us and, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and what we learn from that time in history. And, and uh, the lessons are so, so rich that, um, I mean, we've, we've had grown men come out of there with, with tears in their eyes often. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's, it's a very, very special place, a very special experience, and, and we can't speak highly enough of it. Uh, and certainly... Um, for Sir Peter Jackson to have um, put so much of, of his personal treasure on display to the public is, is a huge, huge gift to, to New Zealand and to visitors from around the world who uh, have the privilege of, of seeing it. Oh, absolutely. The, I mean, to me, it's just incredible to see some of that stuff. And, you know, the last time I went down there in uh, 2011, um, one new item that I noticed was um, Herman Goring's uh, uh, World War One. Um, flying jacket, wasn't it? It's actually a World War Two tunic. Oh, it's a World War Two. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, because of of the history of Goering, uh, we've always had some display uh, of artifacts that Peter gathered from uh, Herman Goering's World War One history. Um, it was thought that really, because everyone knows him as a, a World War Two Two person personality, that's really not the right word, but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, he's too pivotal in history to not continue that little bit of the story of of the World War One fighter pilot Herman Goering. Uh, you know, we, you have to include uh, where that story led to, yeah. and because um, the the collection have been able to acquire uh, a couple of artifacts, his uh, officer's cap and, and tunic from the Second World War, uh, placing them on display with with his First World War. Uh, items um, really just uh, completed the story a little bit more. Absolutely, it's just remarkable. I mean, you've got all those uh, Richthofen uh, artifacts there from from the whole family of Richthofens, haven't you? And um, all sorts of just mind blowing stuff. Yeah, it is. It's mind blowing. Yeah. Um, to to just be in the presence of those items. I mean, I yeah. was again going through childhood and reading books. There's a book I used to have open all the time, so much so that the pages. <laughs> and and um, it was called Aces uh, of the First World War, and and that's where I became familiar with um, the fact that one of the biggest souvenir hunters of World War Two was was uh, Manfred von Richthofen. Right. And and of course you'd see the photographs of his his personal uh, room where he had the serial numbers cut from airplanes and so on. Yep. yep. Um, but also the the victory cups, so that um, he'd had his jeweler produced these silver cups um, which are only what 60 millimeters tall yeah uh, and then then the tenth one uh, was more like a beaker it was more like um, 90 millimeters tall yeah as, and they were kind of markers of each tenth kill um, and the two that we have on display from from that collection um, are number 10 and number 11 and number 11 is extremely significant because that represents the battle between Manfred von Richthofen and Leno Hawker, which really was, was the time when Richthofen was elevated from uh, a reasonably successful hunter to, to um, uh, I suppose, 
without trying to over-romanticise it, to, to really being a, a knight because the opponent on this occasion was a, another fighting scout with another very confident uh, pilot and it really was a, a pretty equally matched duel and a, and a duel to the death yeah. Uh, yeah. as it happened. So um, uh, just looking at that one little cup with 11 marked on it, to me, I can't look at that without getting goosebumps and hairs on the back of my neck and the whole deal because there's, there's just so much history in that one little artefact. Um, again, I can't stress enough what, what a privilege it is for us at Omarka, but for all of New Zealand to have um, such a, an amazing collection uh, accessible for viewing to yeah. the public um, yeah. in this country. We're very, very lucky. It's incredible. And, and the, um, the actual Aviation Heritage Centre has got a wonderful international reputation now, as has the Air Show. And um, I'm sure that you're probably finding that more and more people are coming from overseas for the, um, for the Air Show each time, aren't you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, certainly this year we've got people, well, from all over the world. I mean, we could start listing out countries, but um, uh, it's always had that international flavour to it. It's, it's interesting at the, um, at the awards dinner we hold on the Sunday night after the show, uh, there's always quite a, um, uh, a snapshot of the cross-section of, of nationalities. And, and uh, last year I had the, the mischievous temptation to ask for all the Australians to put their hands up. Yep. And it seemed like they outnumbered everybody else. So, oh, right. So it's great that we've got buy-in from our near neighbours. And, and, of course, what you hear from the Australians and from the rest of the world is you can't go to an air show in their country and be as close to the action as you can here. Right, so, right. So um, it's something that uh, I think we need to look after carefully with, with obviously, our flying operations um, the culture of safety, yep. uh, and I take my hat off to all those guys who have been architects of, of the shows uh, around the country uh, and of all participating pilots who have just um, been so professional in their conduct. It's, um, it's what makes these shows uh, as successful as they are. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, and, of course, you're, you're Australian yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how, how long have you been in New Zealand now? 23 years. Yeah, so you're pretty much a Kiwi. Um, but uh, it must be quite um, something that makes you quite proud that you're now doing it better than, than the Aussies and they're coming here to see the year shows. I think it's pretty neat. Um, and, I, and I love the, the blurring of the line that is the Tasman Sea. You know, I like <laughs> the fact that um, uh, it's not just myself living in New Zealand, but other Australians speak about what's being done in New Zealand with quite a lot of pride. Um, it's an, it's, it always surprises me, even even not talking specifically about the air shows, but Australians will say to me regularly, "Gosh, why is it all happening in New Zealand? You guys are really, you know, leading the world." And what what happens with heritage aviation? Yeah. And that's an interesting perception, and I, and I've always tried to sort of balance that a little bit by saying, if it was possible in Australia to put all the warbirds together, you know, I mean, you've got 15 Trojans, for goodness sake, you know, yeah. plus all the wind eels and, and uh, more Harvards than we have here and so on. Right. You'd never do it, of course, in Australia because it's such a big country that the distances preclude the ability to do that. It's just unreasonable to try and fund that type of, um, that, that sort of distances of flying involved. Right, right. Um, but all of that aside, when you look at what else is being done in New Zealand, um, 
there's quite a remarkable can-do attitude that, um, I mean, every country likes to think that they have can-do attitude. Yeah. What we've seen here is already done it. <laughs> um, and I'm not, not trying to, um, to be patronising here at all. It's, it's a case of um, when we first saw Glenn Powell uh, start on, on, on the Mosquito Program, yeah. I think a lot of people thought, well, it's um, great to have good intentions, but yeah. it's going to take one mammoth undertaking. You know, really someone has to dedicate their entire life to doing something like that, and he has done it. Yes. So um, it's intriguing to note things like the mosquito, the, the Anson, of course, which is um, one of the most outstanding restorations I've ever seen in any country. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, the work being done by TVAL crew, um, is second to none in, in the world of World War One aircraft. Yeah. Um, yep. So for such a small country, uh, New Zealand is certainly punching above its weight. I know that term gets overused, but um, it's impressive to see. And impressive, I should also mention, from people who come from other countries to be a part of it. Um, you know, like we've got a few Americans involved with TVAL, like Gene DeMarco, who's brought a lot of talent here to to help this all happen. Yes. Um, and of course, I, you know, I'm not. Uh, not originally from New Zealand either. So, so whatever happens, I think there's a certain magic in in the country that lends people to want to do extraordinary things, and and we're seeing the results of it. So, um, I think we can all be pretty proud of that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's just get on to the upcoming uh, air show in a couple of weeks' time, um, three weeks' time. Uh, Classic Fighters 2013. Um, the Yanks are coming as the theme. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what we can expect to see? Sure, I should probably explain uh, how the theme came about. Um, somebody said, we've never done America before, and our response was, well, nothing happened in America. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of training, a lot of manufacturing, but uh, the, the, apart from Pearl Harbor, there was no no attack. There's, there's been, been no significant action on on uh, American soil. Yeah. And, of course, we've done Pearl Harbor as a part of the um, the... Aviation the Movies theme some years ago. Right, right. Um, not to say we wouldn't do it again, but uh, we'd want to do it to a different level. Yeah. So the idea that came back was, well, it's in the matter of what happened in the USA. It's what America brought to conflicts, both First World War, Second World War, and, and other events. So um, basically the bottom line is the, the Yanks showed up, the Americans showed up, hence the Yanks are coming. Right. Uh, but when they turned up, it wasn't just bringing kitty hawks and jeeps, it was also bringing uh, an attitude, uh, a little bit of glamour, um, music, dance, chocolate and nylons, <laughs> all, <laughs> yeah. all the cliches. Yeah, um, yeah. And we just thought, well, that's that's not a bad thing to, to pay homage to, um, just, just to kind of acknowledge that um, both conflicts benefited significantly, particularly from material provided by um, the United States, I mean, all of our P-40s and Corsairs coming from Lindley's. Yep. Um, and, and that really did flavour the conflict in the Second World War. In the First World War, of course, they, they arrived uh, only in the last 12 months, really. Yep. But we yep. did have the, the, the colour and dash of, of Americans flying with the French Air Service under the you know, uh, Lafayette Escadrille. Yes, yes. And, in fact, I'm doing my own Newport at the moment, being recoloured as, as a an aircraft from that, that unit. So uh, we have Indians' heads on the side of, of the aeroplane now. Right, right. 
And this will be your first Alpha Classic Fighters for your Newport? Uh, it's the first time it's flying at the event, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. And of course, we've also got a, a few other significant aircraft making the debut, um, like the Anson and the uh, the Fock Wolf 190, haven't we? Uh, well, of course, the Anson's been around. It was up in Auckland and it was a hood in, in um, January. Yep. Um, so certainly the first time on its home base. Yep. Um, the Fock Wolf really is the star of the show. Um, I've seen the airplane quite a number of times now. Uh, very distracting having something like that taxi past your office window. And again, <laughs> I have that huge sense of privilege that um, you've got to pinch yourself. But um, the airplane uh, is really quite unlike other aircraft. It's, um, I try to think of what I could compare it with, and I've thought of things like the Sea Fury and what have you, but, but just the raucous racket that comes from that, that engine uh, is just a, an airplane that, that screams arrogance. Yeah. <laughs> that's true, yeah. So, um, I may have to shoot down other airplanes. That's all I'm here for. <laughs> and um, and Frank, Frank flies it beautifully. Um, right. Yeah, makes it talk. So, so no, it's, a, it's always a, a huge thrill to, to see and hear the, the Falkwolf out. And, uh, of course, no one in the Southern Hemisphere has seen a Falkwolf fly at an air show uh, in this part of the world. So That's right. That's right. So it's quite a special debut for us. Yeah, um, yeah. After a false start in, in 2011, um, the guys at Dem Aviation have really, really gone through the airplane and, and um, just made it as good as it can be. You know, eventually adding the guns. I didn't even think it needed guns because the airplane was so awesome anyway. But it certainly looks even more menacing now. So, right, right, right. Yeah, it's a wicked weapon, boy, oh boy. Great, great. And another one I'm hoping um, can make it along uh, is the Avenger Plonky, back in its New Zealand colours. Yeah, well that's, that's still slightly unknown. Uh, yep. There's a few jobs still to be done. Uh, the, the painting ran a little bit longer than expected, and, and Brendan and his team were uh, mindful that they still needed to to do an annual on the airplane. Yeah. So we'll just keep our fingers crossed on that one. Yep. Um, definitely an important airplane to have on the field if we can have it um, between the Anson and the Avenger. I suppose it's the first time we've had two bombers on the airfield. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, actually, one of the ones I'm really quite excited about is an airplane I flew in in Australia many years ago, which is the Staggerwing uh, UXP. Oh yes, yep. It's actually a, a 1936 Staggerwing, so quite early. Wow. Uh, earlier than any of the other ones that have been seen in New Zealand, I think. I'm uh, pretty sure. Um, and it has the distinction of having been seconded to General MacArthur's transportation unit at some point during the war so um okay it's got a little claim to fame there yeah 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 well that's great um just for the listeners who may not for some reason may not be uh, all that aware of um classic fighters um could you just give a little bit of a rundown on the the dates and the um ticket prices and you know anything that they might need to know uh, accommodation and um, whether there's going to be camping there this year and that sort of thing right um I'm not really big on the ticket price numbers, I have to confess, but yep. everything is on the website, um, uh, classicfighters.co.nz. Um, in fact, uh, there's there's a lot of information there uh, on what to do when you get into Marlborough, where to go seeking accommodation. Um, certainly accommodation is tight, but I've found that people who are resourceful always find somewhere to stay. Yep. Uh, just about every house in every suburb of Marlborough 
has got guests staying over <laughs> Easter somehow. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, that's, a, that's a good thing. Yes. Camping options, there are some. Our biggest distraction at the moment is um, obviously the whole country's in a drought situation, so we're going to be very mindful of what we can and can't do under the, the rural fire regulations. Right. Uh, right. We're having a, a meeting about that tomorrow, actually, with our, our rural fire chief. So, okay. Um, there might be some restrictions, but um, I always figure that in everything that the adage about where there's a will, there's a way applies, and whether it comes to trying to run a, a major air show in a small town like Blenheim down to finding somewhere to stay overnight, people who want to do something will always achieve it. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, same same deal. If you're looking for somewhere to stay, I'm sure you'll find it. I mean, there's always other places anyway, like um, uh, Havelock or Picton or Kaikoura or Nelson even. Yep, yep. Of accommodation in Nelson. Right, right. Um, mainly because they're all over here. But <laughs> 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 for Easter, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, shouldn't shouldn't be an uh, impossible mission to find somewhere to stay. Great, okay. Well, um, really all I can say now is I just can't wait. It's... Uh, couple of weeks to wait now but uh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be down there and uh and i'll catch up with you and um really really looking forward to it sounds great excellent thanks for the chat no worries thank you very much okay dave. all the best Cheers, mate. bye bye that was the wings over new zealand show with dave homewood